Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone, and welcome along to the show. I'm glad you could join me as we get to speak with Masa Mahageg today. Now, Masa is originally from Iran, so we talk a lot about her childhood, what it was like growing up there, and what first got her interested in science and technology. She came to New Zealand to do her PhD in artificial intelligence, so we talk about that a lot. And then we also talk about SheSharp, which is an initiative that she founded to connect women in technology. It's a fascinating conversation, and I know you're going to enjoy it. If you do, then you might want to check out some of the earlier episodes as well, because there's more than 131 in the back catalog. And a big shout out to the Future of Learning team, in particular Hamish, Cheryl, and Louisa. This was recorded during one of the workshop sessions at the Future of Learning conference. Information is included about that in the show notes, as well as a bunch of other links to things that we talk about in this interview. Now let's get into this conversation with Masa. So it's a real pleasure to welcome Masa Mohageg, who's a senior lecturer in the engineering school at AUT and the founder and director of SheSharp, which is a charitable trust. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me here. I really appreciate it because there's sessions happening as we're talking at the Future of Learning conference, and you're taking time out to talk with me, so I really appreciate it. (laughs) No problem. Happy to talk to you. And on this podcast, what we do is we um, actually go back in history, and we find out a little bit about people's origins and where Mm -hmm. they're from, and then use that as a a way to then find out about what they're doing now. So in your case, I just would love it if we could jump back in time and you could tell us a bit about where you're from. Sure. Uh, I'm originally from Iran, so I'm Persian, and I moved to New Zealand in 2008 to do my PhD in artificial intelligence and natural language processing. So I did my bachelor's degree in computer uh, software engineering, and then I change it to computer architecture, what today is named as Internet of Things. And then I moved to New Zealand in 2008 to pursue my PhD. um, And I did my PhD in machine translation and artificial intelligence. And since then, New Zealand been my home. And I've been working at university for the last um, 12 years. Wow, that's fantastic. Well, I'd love to unpack what you've studied and, and how you ended up studying it. Um, so just thinking back to your childhood, sure. could you tell us a little bit about what it was like? Like, I've never been to Iran, so okay, yeah, I'd definitely. love to know about what, what it was like. Uh, I, I often actually get asked about this question, that how I ended up in technology field, because not many female at the moment that really study computer engineering. Mm. For me, all it started uh, when I was seven years old. So my dad, he's an architect, but he took me to the computer store. He wanted to build his own computer. And I remember I was so fascinated with the motherboards, all those little tiny electronic components and the the pins are sticking out of motherboards more than actually what you can do with a computer. And he just led me to help him to build his own computer mm. without you know, being afraid of breaking stuff or you know, um, blow the whole things up. But he just really gave me that courage that I can actually help him. And it was fascinating for me from then. And funny enough, even in the last few years, I've been in charge of the course, which is ha- computer hardware technology, still mm. dealing with a lot of hard- computer hardware components. But for me, all has started from there. And I'm uh, living in an environment that my mom, she's a principal in a school, and my dad, he was an architect. So education has been in our family. And it is interesting to know that in Iran, 
around 80% of people that are living there, they actually have a university degree to some Mm. Extent. Wow. So funny enough, even we do you see that people are taxi driver, but they actually are a physician because there's no job there. So then, you know, mm. so education is highly respected in Iran. And right. I did my bachelor's and master's in Iran and moved to New Zealand for my PhD. And your father, had he always been curious about technology or what caused him to go out and buy the components to build a computer? I think he's very hands-on and he really enjoys technology. And I remember we had opportunity to expose the technology from early on. But uh, he himself, he's done his education in U.S. And he always wanted me um, to just pursue study outside of Iran, Mm -hmm. as much as my mom didn't really want me to move uh, because I only have one sister and she really didn't want to lose her daughter. And especially far away to go. (laughs) Exactly. So it's the other part of the world. So I keep telling my mom that it's not really at the end of the world. If you just turn up the globe upside down, you're at the top. So (laughs) and she just keeps saying at the time that it was really difficult for her, me living a country. But my Mm. dad, he always wanted me to experience a study somewhere else. Mm. Is that because of his the the shape that his own life had taken from studying abroad? I'm sure that was that was a reason, and I'm glad that I took the opportunity. I was going to go to Germany, and I studied German language for a long time, but then I got two scholarships from New Zealand, so it was really hard to say no. And I'm yeah. so glad to um, you know pick New Zealand as a place for yeah. me to study, and now this is my home. That's great. So you're just describe yourself as a seven year old then, because I'm I'm always curious about the origins of how mm-hmm. did how did an interest begin? You know, so you're seven years old. I have a seven year old daughter. I'm not sure she would be so interested in assembling a, a computer. But w- did it, it did it have a fun element with your dad? Like, how does this work? And or what was it that intrigued you? I think the way that he introduced me to technology mm-hmm. that that had a really important impact on me and you know seeing a technology as a fun subject. So I didn't look at it as a technology at the time. Right. To me, it was like, you know, playing with the, you know, like a Lego pieces, playing with the little electronic components. So mm-hmm. he introduced technology to me as a game. And it was that fun element of that is probably the reason that I just really hooked with technology. And then later on, I found, oh, that was a computer, actually. And what you've done, you assembled the whole computer system. So I think introducing a subject or a topic in a fun, interesting way, it's really keen, you know, in attracting students to the subject. And mm-hmm. I think I was lucky that to be introduced in a, in a fun way. So and mm-hmm. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, that's great, because that's been a theme of this conference for me anyway, is this idea that, that you, you introduce learning through fun or through games, and then you unlock the door of, actually, you just learned something important. It is very true. And it was fascinating for me, because one of the things I noticed here, that not many girls that are actually enjoying mathematics, but funny enough, math was my favorite subject in the school. Hmm. And I think I remember, all I remember, there were some really good teachers that I had, and they really helped me to enjoy math, and I really enjoyed problem solving. Hmm. So I think being curious about technology, wanted to solve problems, the way we're pitching every topic, it's really important. Mm. So So looking back, reflecting on those teachers, mm. what would you say were the key characteristics of them that, that they were able to impart knowledge in that way? I think persistence. They with with math especially you have to be patient. 
and you can get it wrong in many different you know way and times but having someone to keep telling you that's okay why don't you try it in a different way mm -hmm. let's just go one step back and try something you know easier and then start to challenge you with the difficult question again using gamification so mm -hmm. this is the next door to unlock so let's try harder mm. i think that push really helped me at the time i could have easily give up you know the very first math problem we've been stuck mm. so this is why um, the area i'm actually very fascinated and that was the area of my talk education and artificial intelligence is our use of some of those ai application mm. to help students with uh, mathematics and one of them is the tool can actually work in like a assistant or tutoring system math tutoring system mm -hmm. so when a student is stuck with the problem it can come on board help you give you some advice so hopefully it can make math an easier subject right no that's great and i love that idea of the persistence something that my kids have been coming home talking a lot about is gross mindset mm -hmm. and this idea that you add yet at the end so i can't do it yet, yet. and i think that's quite a transformative way of viewing things isn't it like this is a really difficult problem. I can't solve it yet. Mm. No, definitely. That, that's, a, that's a fact. So we have to have this shift from that fixed mindset to the growth mindset and mm. have this uh, capability of can do mm. rather than, you know, giving up. Yeah. So tell me, just I'm really curious about Iran and growing up mm -hmm. there. So just uh, what was your, you had parents obviously who traveled quite a lot and been overseas, but what was your impression of the West and like um, growing up as a child there, what what did you think America would be like or a Western country? Um, when I moved to New Zealand, so New Zealand was the first place I moved um, as a place. I've, I've been in quite a few different countries for a holiday, mm -hmm. but New Zealand was the very first place I decided to stay and leave. And for me, when I moved here, one of the things I noticed back home was a majority of my classes I was one my, one female in a class of you know 50 guys so I was always part of minority mm -hmm. and I thought coming to the western country that would be different um, I started studying at Mass University at the time in 2008 I was the only girl doing PhD in computer engineering so that was a little bit shock to me. I just right. thought it's going to be different here, yeah. but it wasn't. And this after that, so probably that's something to do with my generation. And then I started lecturing in this field. And a few years back in a class of 250, I only had five students, five female students. Mm. So that was one of the very first thing I noticed in terms of you know education system. Mm -hmm. But the other things um, that probably came to my mind was the... Um, New Zealand was way too quiet and calm for me coming from the country with 70 million um, population. So mm -hmm. coming here, it was just um, a little bit too, to me was, I, I remember the very first month, I keep asking people, is it a public holiday? Where are people? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes, <laughs> that was funny. my very first impression. Yeah. Yeah. Especially coming uh, compared to a big international city, I guess yeah. it would be quite a shock mm -hmm. in New Zealand. <laughs> well, hopefully you've gotten used to it. And oh, yeah, definitely. Now, it now. now when I, uh, whenever I go back home and coming back here, just, you know, when I go back in yeah. Iran, the first couple of days, I just said, uh, oh, it's very intense and hectic, and I missed there. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. So coming through your high school years, did this continue, this love of mathematics? And was that the area that you started to really 
specialize in? Yes. Um, What we had back there, you had to choose between two different majors. So you could go to biology or you could go to math. And if you go to biology and math and science were together. So for me, it was very clear from early on that I would want to be in the math um, major and study in that field. Right. So in university, um, that was just the natural field that you wanted to get into right away? No, or? actually, no. Oh, okay. It is very challenging in Iran to get to university. At least it was at my time. Mm-hmm. Every year, around 5 million people, they go through the entrance exam, and it's a big competition to get to university. Ah. So something that we take for granted here in New Zealand, mm-hmm. the people, they can go and just study double degree or you know they pick what they want to do. Back in Iran, I had to go through the examination. And I based see. on my score, I could just choose up to 100 different majors. And they were just trying to see my score is fitting which subject. Mm. So my very first one is my father. He was an architect. I really wanted to study in DAFL. So it was that. And then after that was computer engineering. So I didn't get to my first option. So mm. I fell into the second. Interesting. Yeah, it's. It, I think you're right. It is something that people take for granted in New Zealand is like higher education, tertiary education go for it you know whereas because yeah. I, I lived in japan for a while and in japan it's very difficult to get into university once you're in i think it's quite easy <laughs> that's what i've heard too, um, yeah. but getting actually getting into the university was quite challenging it was i remember a year before and uh, getting to university i was studying day and night for right. it it was really hard and I don't know, you know, looking back, I really like the idea of, you know, studying double degree and, you know, just following what you're really interested. So mm-hmm. I was lucky that I got to my, you know, my second option. But sometimes people, based on a score, they won't really get to the first hundred options that they have uh. as a career path. So you kind of have to study something. And here you have opportunity to go and pick what you want. If you didn't like it, you can choose another one. So you don't really have anything to lose. Mm, yeah. So when did artificial intelligence start making its way into what you were studying? Was it computer engineering at the beginning and yes. then introduced? Or? Yeah, good good question. So all I started, I started with computer software engineering. But okay. I enjoyed it a lot, but again, because I'm rather a practical person, I really wanted to just build, create, make, and at the same time, break stuff. And (laughs) software engineering didn't really give me that pleasure, so I moved to computer architecture. So, And that was the time I did my master's degree in computer architecture. And when I decided to come to New Zealand, so for a PhD, you have to look for a good supervisor. And based on the supervisor area of you know expertise, mm-hmm. you come up with your proposal and what you want to do for your PhD. Uh, I looked for some really good uh, professors here in New Zealand. And one of the one I found, his area of work was artificial intelligence and computer science. So I pretty much changed my um area of you know study mm-hmm. to artificial intelligence and it was challenging the very first year or two mm-hmm. because it was a new field for me but after that I really fell in love with it yeah that's great and the just the process of ending up in New Zealand you said you got a scholarship to come to New Zealand but I got a scholarship that after that so okay. I am um, because it is it sounds it seems a little bit random to go from Iran to New Zealand like it is quite far. It is yes. so how because you'd been studying German, you said. Yes. So just talk us through that. Like sure. what shifted that meant it was New Zealand? Sure, I'll tell you a story. So the story was, 
I um, wanted to go to Germany because firstly it's closer to Iran and mm-hmm. I had a few families there. But then I found out that for a study PhD in Germany, you have to go through your master degree one more time. So they would really like to, you have the master degree from there to be able to qualify for PhD. I see. So it was pretty much almost two years waste of my time so to go through that Mm -hmm. so that option was out very soon for me and then I started looking for um, different places so I at the time my uncle he was in Australia Mm -hmm. so I applied for Monash University I had one uncle here in New Zealand and I didn't actually have any plan to come to New Zealand because I already applied for Monash University. I got the scholar, I got the uh, offer from Monash University, but my uncle here in New Zealand, he said, why not New Zealand? And I said, okay, I've already applied for Monash. So here are all my documents. If you can just, you know, submit it to another place. <laughs> <laughs> and funny enough, because he used to live in North Shore, he didn't even bother to brought all my applications to Auckland University. He took it to Massey University in Albany and in less than two days, I got the offer from them and I could put the applications to get the scholarship. So they offered me a scholarship. They give me an offer of place. Uh-huh. So that changed my whole plan. And Gosh. when I moved to New Zealand, three months after that, I got another scholarship from a Ministry of Education. So that was designed for international students. Wow. So I had a really, really smooth <laughs> Uh, journey during my PhD. It was very welcoming. It's fascinating, though, you know, like to be on course for one thing, and then an uncle says, come here, and and you don't even apply. You just say, well, here's the papers, you go. (laughs) Yes, that was really my story. And yeah, it was very interesting, because, you know, I believe that sometimes it's your destiny. So Mm. now, um, I met my husband here in New Zealand, Mm. and here is my house, and it's as we have a little two-year-old, three-years-old daughter at the moment, and it, it is just really amazing. So yeah. everything changed. There you go. Well, a big shout-out to your uncle then. Yes. Who, <laughs> <laughs> who applied on your behalf. Yeah. That's cool. So you arrive in New Zealand, um, and you're getting used to the AI. Like, what did you known about AI before you arrived? Had it been on your radar in any meaningful way? or? So when I came here, I had the clear vision about my project, which mm-hmm. was machine translation. So trying to get the machine to translate real time right. from um, English to Persian. So again, I really wanted to work in something meaningful and I wanted to come up with the device at the time was having a speech-to-speech translator will be able to translate real time from English to Persian. So something to help you know visitors of New Zealand that to be able to talk and, you know, to people that they come from Iran. Uh, everything was good, but after a couple of months into my study, I noticed it is very challenging because for doing machine translation, you do need to access to huge amount of data in both Persian and in English. Mm. So English was easy. You could find so many bilingual or free data sets around English. But with Farsi, it was so difficult. Mm. So I spent a really good a year and a half to put the data sets for Farsi. Then by that time, I noticed that it is impossible to have to work on a speech-to-speech. So we dropped the speech part off from my project. So the project changed to having a machine translation to, to translate from text to text, I English see. to Persian. Mm-hmm. And everything was good. So year and a half to my PhD, I had almost my data set sorted. One night, 
close to Iran election, Google released English Persian machine translation. Hmm. Boom. My friend, that was my PhD. Right. And I got shocked. I remember I called my supervisor and I told him, what we were planning to do is already done. What do I need to do? And <laughs> he was like, don't panic, don't panic. Who's done it? And I was like, Google. And he says, easy, you need to beat Google. And I was like, that is not easy. And that was my challenge for the rest of my work, that, you know, come up with something, you yeah, know, it's better. It's even better than Google. Yeah. And um, that was very challenging because, as you know, that they do have access to a lot of data, and that is exactly what you need. Mm -hmm. But their approach was a statistical, so all based on probability, to finding a translation for one phrase based on a probability. Mm -hmm. My approach at first was that, but we're talking about 2008 and 2009. Today, all approaches around deep learning, but at the time was a statistical because that wasn't that amount of data. So... My idea at that time, and when I discussed with my supervisor, he said, you can bring your Persian knowledge and add it to the statistical. So coming with the hybrid model, which is a combination of knowledge base, knowing a grammar, knowing a you know, linguistic behind a language, mm -hmm. plus a statistical, and see if you can get a better result compared to Google. And that was my PhD. And thankfully, by the time I come up with the algorithms and combine these two models together, I could get the better translation um, from Google. Hmm. And that really opened up a lot of doors to me because since then I just started, you know, having some, you know, collaboration in different projects with Google. And, you know, that was really fascinating. Yeah, that's amazing. I can see the potential, though. If you can do it with this language, then why not do it with this other language? And then what else could it be? Which is the beauty of technology, isn't it? It's scalable and, you know... Um, it kind of makes me think of Star Trek, you know, the translators, like they just talk as if they're talking. And I assume there's some technology that means that it's instantaneously translating what they're saying, which is kind of what you're aiming for. Right? Yes, that was at the time. And now we can see the advances of technology really. At the moment, we have very accurate transla translator that they can translate in real time. Mm -hmm. Some of the languages with the you know low resources, definitely they don't have the accuracy. But the majority of languages, they are at the level that you can actually mm -hmm. rely on a translation. Mm -hmm. As a result of that, and because everything was based on the stats, so you don't need to be linguistic, mm -hmm. we uh, got Funding to do some work around English Maori mm. and specifically trying to translate those powerful sessions for people coming to New Zealand. Mm -hmm. uh, we worked on it for a year, over a year. We had few publications around it, but um, we really needed to work with some Maori people who are very fluent in the language and at the same time they know about computer science. So it was really difficult to find some skilled people in that field. Mm -hmm. So that project is still going, but it's not as fast as we really anticipated. Right. But maybe one day. One day, yes, And maybe definitely. someone listening can go, oh, I'd like to be involved in that. You never oh, know. Oh, I would love <laughs> to actually have someone who wants, because this is something that I'm really passionate about. I really yeah. want to help with the language. So we mm. have to keep the language a lot. Mm. And it sounds like you're being able to be fluent um, Farsi speaker and English speaker, like that was kind of critical, wasn't it, to be able to bridge the gap of, of translation? True. And this is what is missing in these projects. So we need yeah. someone who will be able to, being fluent in Maori as well as English and being able to help, you know, with 
putting these data sets together. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So I have a question for you sure. about artificial intelligence. <laughs> um, I actually interviewed someone named Ben Reed a few weeks ago. So he's executive director at the AI Forum. And we talked a lot about artificial intelligence. And he was talking about two types of artificial intelligence in the sense of popular imagination mm -hmm. is sort of robots that are making decisions and they're autonomously doing things. And then what he was talking about was almost like higher mathematics, mm -hmm. which is more computational and it's AI, but it's it needs inputs as well. Sure. So could you just talk about that? Is that a sure. distinction that you draw as well? Um, my interpretation would be a little bit different. So mm -hmm. I would like to start by defining artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. And I will go one step back and define intelligence and who we call an intelligent person. So to me, an intelligent person is someone who is capable of solving problem, learning over time, mm -hmm. make decision, and applying this knowledge in a similar you know, situation. So follow from this, artificial intelligence is really getting machine to make decision, learn over time, and be able to solve problem without human intervention. So now if you look at it with this definition, you will see that many applications around you or many devices, if they solve problem, if they, you know, make decisions without your input, they're definitely using some kind of AI. Mm. And there are different classifications for AI. So the very first one is artificial narrow intelligence, which is really when machine trained to do one task, mm -hmm. speech recognition, face recognition, machine translation. Mm -hmm. And this is what we have today. So the next step after that, which is artificial general intelligence, mm -hmm. and that's a time that machine works intelligently. It's a general purpose. So they can apply knowledge in different scenario. And the one after that, which is artificial superintelligence, and when it's a time that machine capability of solving problem and the level of intelligence surpass human average. Mm -hmm. And that would be a time that we have to start you know, panicking what would be the next. But I don't really think it's coming anytime soon. Right, yeah. Well, just the, as you described it, it's coming back to me that Ben talked about that narrow as well being more of the computational side of things. And then the general was the next level up. True. Um, yeah. And I guess in popular, you know, movies and imagination, it kind of immediately jumps to that final one, which you talked about, the super intelligent. artificial intelligence, doesn't yeah. it? In, in both positive and negative ways, because if you look at like the movies, you know, Terminator, it's kind of a robot that will come and get you. That's <laughs> and, so true. Um, you know, 2001, A Space Odyssey, it's how the robot is controlling the spacecraft. And um, so in popular culture, there's that negative side as well, isn't there? So I think one of the things is we're facing today is mm. people tend to confuse science with science fiction. Right. And all the advances of AI usually they challenge by public expectation. Mm -hmm. When people hear about the latest digital assistant, they expect to see something like Jarvis from Iron Man. Mm -hmm. But the reality is these systems are far from perfect. So mm -hmm. they really need human input in order to get better. Mm -hmm. And I think this is why um, for people, always artificial intelligence, it's a scene from sci-fi movie or mm -hmm. something, you know, imaginative from future. Yeah. But the reality is that AI well and truly is here. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I This is a side point, but um, I helped found a startup which looks at chatbots 
for use in the legal industry because I think lots of people are confused about legal problems and questions and things. So the chatbot can interact with you and you can type in, you know, how do I buy a house or um, some basic questions like that. And it can pick up the keywords and it can give you some answers. But it's definitely not the same as a person saying, well, tell me more, what's the exact situation, and, and here's the answer. You know, it's, it's at a more basic level. Still, still pretty good, but um, people have conceptions that, oh, this AI chatbot's going to answer anything you throw at mm-hmm. it, and it just doesn't, it, it can't do that, at least not yet. Not yet, and I think it is very natural. At least I do it all the time. So whenever I get the new AI applications mm-hmm. or a new chatbot or you know play with the new digital assistants, the very first thing I do, I try to test the limit. Right. I try to ask. Try to break it. <laughs> I try to break it. I try yeah. to I confuse the system by asking you know random question, and I think that's a really good thing to do because yeah. you kind of unconsciously you know train a system based on some unknown data, which is what is exactly you know needed. But you're right. So mm. I often again get asked about when it's a good time to release and you know new development with AI. And I think the sooner the better. So mm. the way that you pitch it for general public and your you know clients and audience, it needs a little bit of you know tweaking. But they they you shouldn't put the expectation high. But but you have to release it and you get it you know in the hand of a customer. Yeah. Well, I'm really curious to turn um, from AI and just thinking it's really woven its way through our interview so far. Just um, you know when you came to New Zealand, you thought that there would be more women within your class, for example. And I just would love to hear more about She Sharp and what that exactly is and what you're aiming to achieve with that. Sure. So SheSharp all started in 2014, mm-hmm. and the idea was creating a platform for women in tech. So it is a place that we try to connect professional from industry with high school students and tertiary students. Mm-hmm. And this all came from my, my own personal experience being in tech. So I, I wish I had more female friends, or mm-hmm. even today, I wish I had more female colleagues at university. And I thought having a place that people can share and learn from each other, it can make that journey much easier. Mm -hmm. So the idea started to just giving people opportunity to talk and learn. And at the same time, we're creating a role model for our next generation because Mm -hmm. I'm a great believer that you can't be who you can't see. It is very difficult. I didn't have any female lecturers back at the university. And I just thought that would be a great idea to actually connect these people together. For high school students, it's really good to see some of the students, they're already studying in this field, and they're seeing some you know, successful women in this mm. field. Mm-hmm. For university students, to connect them with people from industry. And I thought that as professional in this field, we love to get back to our community, and that was a way for our professionals to actually connect with the new mm. and next generation. So it started with a group of 25 students in 2014. We have over 1,000 members right now just in Auckland. Wow. We do have a branch in New York as well. They liked the idea, and they started doing a similar things there. Mm-hmm. And I would love to take it to all the different cities, at least in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're running events. The, the format of our events is usually a keynote to speak here or a, a panel discussion to start with, to sharing the stories about success and challenges. And the second part of the event is hands-on and practical. 
So we want to give everyone opportunity to try tech, to learn something, create something, and take that back to their school, to workplace. Because mm-hmm. I'm a great believer that you only learn when you get involved in the you know, learning. So the C-Sharp idea was really based on a quote from Benjamin Franklin. He said, tell me and I forget, teach me and I remember, involve me and I learn. And we believe that really by giving opportunity to our next generation to taste and try technology for themselves, they can actually make an informed decision if tech career is the right career path for them. Mm, that's a great initiative. And I love the uh, the word that springs to mind is mentorship. You know, the idea that there are people further down the journey, further down the path, can help people learning at the beginning stages of that journey. Um, yesterday, I interviewed Jason and we talked a lot about mentorship and how important people had been in his life to help him to think, I can do this, I can do it, you know, and, and too often in our culture, I think we just sort of, well, here's some materials and read it. And actually having someone there feeding into your life is so important, isn't it? It's so crucial. And especially I will go further and it says creating a role model. Mm-hmm. It is very important for our next generation because they would actually get informed about, in our fault at least, about technology and challenges. And they know that they can overcome these challenges. Somebody, someone before them, they passed through all these challenges so Mm. they can do it. So that can-do mentality, it is really helpful. This is why at university I try to um, find advisor for especially our female students in the early days of uni because sometimes being part of minority in a classroom is really daunting. Mm -hmm. So having someone to help you along the way, help you through this journey, it makes the journey much more pleasant. Yeah, definitely. So what ages do you start this sort of inviting people along? Uh, Is it high school students? They are or? high school students, so yeah. I would love to take it, you know, to the primary school students because mm. I believe we have to start early on. But our initiative is really focusing on uh, last year high school students, year 12, 13, mm-hmm. and university students all ages and professional from industry. So we usually hold our events within a tech company. So there's opportunity for them to actually see what is life like mm-hmm. to help, you know, by fighting some of those perceptions around tech that you have to work in a dark room by yourself. Mm. So we will we want to show them that, you know, tech field, they do really need them. And it's actually a fascinating and very inspiring place to work. So again, back to our earlier conversation, it's Mm -hmm. a matter of how to pitch this technology to girls. So I know that even some of the job descriptions today, they don't really help with, you know, getting more female into this field. I saw recently one that we are looking for a ninja coder. So I don't want to be a ninja coder. Mm -hmm. And we have to be very mindful of the word we use. And one of the other things that women, they don't want to do cooler stuff. They want to help other people. And if we start, you know, pitching technology that it's a way to help and assist other people to make other people's life easier, mm-hmm. we might have a better chance of, you know, getting more female mm. coming. Well, that leads stuff. nicely into my next question, because I was really, I'm just curious about the perspective that you think females would bring to technology. Um, what is it, those extra layers that you think would be provided? 
So there's definitely we as a male and female bringing different perspective to every, you know, to every topic. Mm-hmm. So after all, 50% of our populations, they are women. And if we don't really have them as part of the equation, so we're probably going to miss that voice mm-hmm. within a whole project. Yep. I remember a few years back, I was at Google headquarters, and there was one of the engineers, he was telling me a story. It wasn't about the gender balance, but it was about diversity at work. And that example stuck with me in terms of diversity. He was talking about the time that they released the YouTube app on it. Apple iOS. And at the time, they noticed after a few days, the majority of videos that they've been uploaded to the YouTube app, they were upside down. Can you guess the reason? I cannot, no. (laughs) The reason for that, if you're right-handed, the way that you're holding your phone, the camera is up top. If you're left-handed, you're holding a phone that the camera is at the bottom. Right. So for the simple reason, they didn't have any left-handed developer within a team, let Mm -hmm. alone in a testing team, to test that app. So this is the issue about diversity. Mm -hmm. So it's not only about gender diversity. We have to have diversity from different ethnicity different culture, different age, skill set. Mm-hmm. And it just brought, you know, the richness of the diverse team. So if you don't have people from, you know, different time of life, you're probably missing on something. Yeah, no, that's great. Well, if people want to know more about SheSharp, I assume there's a website and Facebook and all that yes, type of thing. Yes, we do have a website. It's SheSharp.co.nz. We also have a Facebook page and a closed group in a Facebook and we usually uh, put all our events um, online. So yeah. we are oh. planning our next event uh, for October. And it is actually, we really want to play and a screening. There's a big conference worldwide for women in tech. It's Grace Hopper Conference. Mm-hmm. And this year, that conference is actually happening right now in Orla- Orlando. And 20,000 women in tech, they go into this conference wow. every year. So here in New Zealand, for the first time, we got the opportunity to screen all the keynotes. Mm. So we are planning to screening all the keynotes here in New Zealand. So if anybody interested, they can find more information on our website. That's great. Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, across New Zealand, this surely has to be of interest, right? So it's great that we're here in Christchurch because immediately I, I'm a member of Canterbury Tech. So they have monthly meetups and I interviewed David Carter, who's the current head of Canterbury Tech. And, you know, this type of initiative, I think, would be really of interest to them as well. We would love to have a champion here in Christchurch mm. to um, run shop events because we really want to help all our young females in New Zealand have an opportunity to test, try technology and make an informed decision. Right. The, the, my biggest worry is our girls saying, I'm not good at it without really knowing that if they're good at it or not. Right, yeah. Well, that's a call out then to the listeners. We'll see what happens. You never know. Sometimes <laughs> these things, you know, people will listen and then they'll tell a friend and we'll see what happens. Fantastic. Um, can, can I ask you a question? Um, in terms of your own heroes in tech, a woman in tech, is there anyone that really stands out looking back in history that you think, wow, that's a great example or that's someone I really admire? I, I just give you an example because I'm listening to this podcast called 13 Minutes to the Moon, which is about the Apollo landing on the moon. And it was fascinating because they talk about the history and then they say, and the woman who was in charge of the software was this person. I've forgotten her name right now. But, you know, and I just thought, wow, that's amazing that's because it's 1960s. Yes. And she was in charge of this 
very, very important department. So it is really important thing because um, the first computer programmer, she was a female, Ada Lovelace, and she's a real hero and not many people really know about her. Mm-hmm. Uh, Grace Hopper, another great example. So they were from past and one of the other one which was my inspiration to start She Shop was someone called Anita Borg. So Anita Borg, she was an American computer scientist and I got the scholarship, which was Anita Borg's scholarship in a memory of her name. And at the time, I didn't really know about her. But when I found out that she was a computer scientist, she was helping to encourage more women to get into tech. Mm-hmm. And she had a vision by year 2020, we're going to have 50-50 you know, balance. Unfortunately, we're far from it. Mm-hmm. So 2020 is next year. But her dedication and the way that she really inspired many women to consider tech she was my uh, inspiration to start she shop. Hmm. That's really great. Well, that's a perfect example. <laughs> what we'll do, maybe in the show notes, let's get some links to some of these people, you know, like little bios, because it'd be great for sure. people to, you know, scroll through and click and find out more about them. Yeah. So your vision in terms of, you know, five or 10 years, we're recording this right now, but time goes by really quickly (laughs) what would be your vision for the future of the tech industry let's start in new zealand but you mean in terms of gender balance yeah yeah i would love to say that we will say 50 50 but i think that is a rather ambitious in the next five or ten years Mm -hmm. i know that the roles are in motion and we're doing a lot of work in this field. So there are a lot of conversations around diversity and inclusion right mm. now in New Zealand. There are many ad hoc groups that they're doing some great things together. And I think if we put all of those uh, forces together, we will probably be able to see some results. Mm. And I'm really hoping that um, by making our next generation champion in this field, we will be impact more girls and I'm hoping that maybe next five or 10 years, we have a better equation. So maybe we have up to 30% or mm. 40% in our workforces. Yeah. Well, you got to have something to aim for, don't you? Sure. So that's yeah. right. I interviewed someone named Michael Trengrove, who's in charge of digital futures, Aotearoa. And he, you probably know, does the code clubs throughout New Zealand. And I love that because it's primary school as well, right? It's like really young kids coming in and learning about coding yeah a few years back i actually helped with that we had that code club branch in auckland right and it was amazing so one of the days so we had uh, a little i think by a little he was maybe only six or seven years old Mm -hmm. and he used to come to this club with uh, his grandmother and they're just sitting together and i really love the fact that you know they play with the technology together so they're designing a game together and it was so fascinating because the students had the expression that he has to help his grandma to learn. And that was amazing to see mm. when we put the student at the center of learning, things will start changing. Yeah, that's a great example. I'm thinking of my own daughter as well. She's 12 and she came home the other day and she was in, I think the class was something about technology. Um, but she was saying, I was learning how to code today, you know, and I was moving this character had to walk five steps and stop and then it would talk and then it would walk five more steps. And, but she was, you know, telling it what to do. And she was quite excited by that. That's amazing. We have to really preserve that excitement. So Mm. I don't know, somewhere along the way, our girls, they're losing this motivation. Mm. And 
that's very scary. I think we have to help them and we have to support them along the way. And that is really important. We had this session a few years back teaching kids how to design an app for Android mobile phone. In We designed the whole thing for two hours and we ran it for the first time. And some of the students, they finish in 45 minutes. Hmm. And they, they design a piano and they design a game in their own phone. And they were so happy to go and show what they created. So I think there is nothing more rewarding that you design your own piano or designing your own game mm. using technology. And they were students that when we started the session, I remembered I asked them, do you like coding? And none of them say yes. Right. And when they finished, I told them what you've actually done today was pure coding. Mm. So it's about changing those perceptions, isn't it? And I keep coming back or I come back to that story of you at seven, you know, your father's there. Hey, let's put this bit here and that bit there. And you just built a computer. You know, it's that sort of energy, isn't it? True. Yeah. That's really and I great. have a three-year-old now that I try to um, kind of expose her to technology even from that age. Mm -hmm. So we don't have boys' toys. We don't have girls' toys. We have right toys for her. And it's just a matter of, you know, trying to introduce things in a fun way. You mm -hmm. don't really call it math or technology or coding. So it's just a game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Well, I've really enjoyed talking with you about this, in particular C-Sharp, which I didn't know that much about before. Thank and you so much for the opportunity. It was oh. lovely to talk to you and your audience. Yeah, no, it's been great. And we'll put some links in the show notes so people can find it afterwards. But I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that interview. I know for me there were several things that stood out, and with three young daughters in particular, it made me really think about how we can encourage greater diversity in technology. If you enjoyed it, check out some of the links in the show notes because there's plenty of information on the web about SheSharp and some of the other initiatives that we talked about, including both Anita Borg and Margaret Hamilton, who was the software engineer that I couldn't remember the name of on the Apollo missions. If you did enjoy this as well, then consider checking out some of the earlier episodes in the back catalog. Until next time.